Coming up next, Real Israel Talk Radio, Program 21, Episode 65. Scarcely would it even be possible for us to die for someone who is self-righteous because they'll just simply say to you, ah, just go away, I can do it myself. So then Paul says, perhaps even a 50-50 chance, maybe, maybe not, that someone would even dare to die for a good man. Hello once again, this is Avi Ben Mordechai, and you're tuned in to Real Israel Talk Radio. And uh, this is program number 2021-0403. Our subject today is defining what is biblical love. Now, you can consult any type of dictionary. I don't care if it's printed or online. And simply type in the question, what is love? Well, what kind of answer might you expect to receive? If you have never done this, well, just try it sometime. And I think you will quickly learn how the world around us defines this thing called love. You will often hear people out in our everyday world saying, love is bringing in a source of joy and happiness and acceptance for one another. Well, conversely then, if we do not generate joy for and acceptance of all people, regardless of one's beliefs and or cultural customs, then we are simply not loving, nor are we injecting love into the world. So perhaps you've heard somebody say to you, well, you're just not being loving, or I don't like what you're saying. You're not sounding like you are speaking to me with love, or that's not a loving thing to say, and, you know, things like that. However, I do think that most people are likely to define love in ways that go far deeper than just speaking about a descriptive series of feelings and emotions. So, with that being said, I think to help us understand the deeper aspects of what love, true love, is all about— I'm going to ask you to join me in taking some time here to consult the passed-down texts of the Bible, and in this, we will seek to understand love through the eyes of the Almighty Eternal One. So, with that being said, let's go ahead and get started. I want to start with 1 John 4.19. This says, we love him because he first loved us. Now let's go to John 15, 12 through 13. This is my commandment, or in Hebrew, this is my mitzvah, that you love one another as I have loved you. Yeshua goes on to say, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. 
Now let's take a look at Matthew 5:46 through 48. Yeshua is speaking and says, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? And I can understand that idea because it's usually trying to manipulate a situation in order to get something out of that relationship. In other words, to meet my needs, not me meeting your needs. Therefore, says Yeshua, you shall be perfect or mature or without fault or complete or even free of blemish in these regards. And in Luke 7:47, Yeshua is speaking about a woman who approaches and comes in while he's in this home and gives a little bit of a lesson of what is to come for him. And then he says, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And then he says this rather curious statement, But to whom little is forgiven the same loves little. But conversely, it would be, for to whom much is forgiven, then the same loves much. Now let's go over here to Acts 20, verse 35. It is quoted, And remember the words of the Master Yeshua, that he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive which is an interesting idea. It takes a lot more to give of something or to give of yourself than it is to receive for yourself. Oh, yeah. Okay, let's go to Romans 5, 6 through 7. Paul says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Messiah died for the ungodly. For scarcely... For a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps, for a good man, someone would even dare to die. I would like to take you through seven different ideas that are embedded into that one statement that Paul said. For when we were still without strength, that's the first one, in due time Messiah died for the ungodly. That's the second one. For scarcely, that's the third one. For a righteous man, that's the fourth one, will one die. Yet perhaps, that's the fifth point. For a good man, that's the sixth point. Someone would even dare to die. That's the seventh point. So let's go through some of these and we'll learn some ideas all based on how to biblically define love. So the first point that he makes is when we were still without strength. Now in the Greek text, this term without strength 
is actually an idea that gives us the concept of suffering from a debilitating illness, or perhaps we could say just a sickness. And uh, actually, in the Hebrew text, we can see how this is used in the uh, Septuagint, the LXX, or the 70, in the story of Leah with Rachel and Leah, Genesis 29, verse 17. The story of Leah is that she has tender, weak eyes. The Hebrew term here is rachach, resh, chaf, chaf. And it gives us this idea of um, weakness, perhaps thin or feeble or scanty or meager, poor, pitiful, that kind of idea. What's being presented here for us to understand this concept of being without strength? Paul is saying, when we were still poor, helpless, pitiful, weak, sick, because it's all coming down as an inheritance that we get from the Garden of Eden at the time when the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Etzadato Vera, when Adam and Hava ate from the fruit of that tree, they passed down to us a sickness that is comprised of feeling low and poor, helpless, or perhaps feeble, weak, thin, scanty, meager, pitiful. You know, this actually reminds me of something that's in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, and verses 11 through 13. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness or justness to those who have been trained by that justness. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. So I think there may be a connection to that kind of an idea in the book of Hebrews. So we could say, therefore, that uh, when we inherited this helpless, poor, low, sick, and weak human condition from the Etzadah Tovirah, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, when we inherited that, because our ancestors, Adam and Eve, took from that fruit, it made us so horribly sick. At that point, Jehovah reaches out while we are in that condition, and he says, I am going to fix you, which tells me something very important, that we're not here to fix ourselves. See, it's not up to us to do that. It's totally up to him. So when we're in that condition, Jehovah comes to us and he lifts us up. He elevates us. And that's just a beautiful part of understanding who we really are. So if you want to really get in touch with who you really are, then you go back over to 
Genesis chapter 29, verse 17, and go to Romans 5, 6 through 7, when we were still stuck in this low, poor, helpless, sick, and weak human condition, in due time, Messiah died for the ungodly. The Hebrew counterpart for ungodliness, as it's used in the Greek text, it would be related to rasha, resh shin ein, meaning wickedness, in connection to the Hebrew word pesha, he shin ein, where it is translated quite often in the English texts as infidelity or unfaithfulness which is something in the Hebrew mindset that means to harbor a criminal attitude or to have an attitude of being a criminal, somebody who is stealing, who's unfaithful, one who does not keep his or her word. This is called ungodly in English, which in Hebrew would be rasha or pesha. And it is a direct downline connection from Genesis 2:17 and Genesis 2:9 which is the tree of the knowledge of good but evil when Adam and Eve became one with that tree they passed down that condition of being pesha or unfaithful along with rasha to be wicked into our DNA genetic imprint or our genome of who we are, what we are made out of. Because when we come into the world, we are made from that stuff, from that condition that they pass down to us. And we have to get redeemed from that if we want to have anything to do with the future that is promised to those who are redeemed, which is life eternal in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Elohim. So let's go on now and see how Paul further weaves these ideas together in Romans 5, 6 through 7 in our defining of what biblical love is all about. He says, when we were still in a low, poor, helpless, sick, and weak condition because of what happened in the garden by inheriting that stuff, from the tree of the knowledge of good but evil. Because of that, in due time, Messiah died for the unfaithful, which is to become guilty or to become disloyal or to behave as a criminal. He died for that kind of person. Now let's go on and see where Paul continues. He says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die? Well, the idea of scarcely is going to be with great difficulty. Can you imagine yourself saying to someone who is evil and rotten and wicked and unfaithful and, you know, someone who is just totally like unhinged in a very wicked way? Could you imagine coming up to them and saying, Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll die for you any day. Uh, I doubt it. <laughs> I mean, you might, 
I don't think I would, but uh, Yehovah, through Messiah, he certainly did that for us. Yehovah managed to do that while we were still in that horrible condition of all those things I just mentioned. That's why Paul says, scarcely. Now, I would like to address this idea of righteous, or what is called justness, which is the word tzaddik. Ordinarily, we would understand the Hebrew word tzaddik, or righteous, to mean something really good and holy and just a beautiful thing. But oftentimes, you will see in Scripture that this idea of a tzaddik, or a righteous one, is also identified or linked with someone who is self-righteous rather than divinely righteous because of a decree or credit that Yehovah gives to us or to that person, just like he gave to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15, when Abraham believed and Yehovah accounted it to him as righteousness, or as a tzaddik. So, in other words, what I'm saying is that this term righteous or tzaddik can have two different meanings depending on the context and on whom you are referring to. Now, if you are referring to someone who empties himself or herself in such a way as to become humble and to believe in Yudhevaveh, or Yehovah, and is not relying on their own efforts and abilities to be accepted or to be good and true and righteous, if that is the case, then, of course, Yehovah is going to call us just or a tzaddik because of what he has done. However, let's take the other side of that that someone might actually refer to themselves as righteous or just or justified. I want to take a look at two passages to help us understand this. This is going to be Mark 2.17 and Isaiah 64.6. First, let's go to Mark 2.17. Now, for the context, we'll begin in verse 16. Yeshua is giving a lesson about the scribes and Pharisees and how they generate their own self-righteousness or their own self-justness because of their knowledge or because of their actions, things like this. Well, he starts giving a lesson about that. And the scribes and the Pharisees They were totally coming unhinged because they saw that he was eating with the tax collectors and all the sinners, which were those people who were completely taking advantage of their Jewish brethren when they were collecting the taxes for the Roman Empire. And so we see some of the scribes and Pharisees, they approach Yeshua's Talmudim or disciples, and they say to them, How is it that he is eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Now, verse 17 says, When Yeshua heard, he then turns around and he says to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, 
or somebody who can heal them. But those who are sick, they are those who actually need a physician. So then Yeshua says, I did not come to call tzaddikim, or the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Of course, we understand the implication here, because the term tzaddik or righteous can be used in a negative sense, meaning someone can say, well, I'm a good person. Have you ever heard somebody ever say that? You might want to talk with them about biblical truth, and you'll come out and say something like, well, you know, we should be keeping these laws and doing this or doing that and having a fear of God. And, you know, well, you'll say things like that. And oftentimes, maybe you have heard from even your own family members saying something like, well, I'm a good person. God will just show me mercy and kindness because, hey, he knows my heart and he knows that I really want to be a good person. And always it's that focus on being a good person. Well, I got to tell you something. Good just ain't going to cut it. And neither is righteous. That ain't going to cut it either. I'm using some pretty poor English there, but you get my point. I did not come to call the righteous, says Yeshua. In other words, I didn't come to call those who think they are already righteous before I get to them. No, no. He says, I came to call sinners, those people who recognize within themselves that they are chata'ah, chata'ah in Hebrew, that they are those kinds of people who have missed the mark of what perfection and holiness and righteousness is truly all about. They've missed the mark. Thus, they are sinners. And so, we must be able to come and empty ourselves and become humble. And in becoming humble, we then open ourselves up to be filled with his spirit, and to be healed of all of the yuck that is inside of us, which we inherited from Adam and Eve in the downline DNA transmission of a corrupted genome from Adam coming from the tree of the knowledge of good but evil. That's the point. So therefore, the idea of a tzaddik or a righteous one also has the connection of being just or justified from Yehovah and being just and or justified because we're attempting to do it by being good people, by trying to just make ourselves just. That is, we are filled with self-righteousness which we know those kinds of people. I'm sure you've run into them, right? So then this brings us to Isaiah 64, 6. He writes the following, starting in verse 5 for context. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned in these ways 
we continue and we need to be saved. Well, I can understand that. We have to come to that realization that we need to be delivered or saved. Well, saved from what? Delivered from what? From the corrupted genetic genome that Adam and Eve gave to us from Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. They passed that sickness down to us. So, we need to be saved. We're going to come back after our break and take a look at this idea and how it fits into Paul's idea of defining what true love is all about. And that's again in Romans 5, 6 through 7. Stay with us. This is Avi ben Mordechai, and you're listening to Real Israel Talk Radio. You're listening to Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, Program 21, Episode 65. Welcome back to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Once again, here's your host, Avi ben Mordechai. Okay, welcome back to Real Israel Talk Radio, and I'm Avi ben Mordechai. Let's continue where we left off dealing with Romans 5, 6 through 7, as we are seeking to define true biblical love. We have to come to that realization that we need to be delivered or saved. Well, saved from what? From the corrupted genetic genome that Adam and Eve gave to us from Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. And if we think that we can somehow bypass that whole situation and just, you know, do a few good things here and there and, you know, kind of tip the scales of justice in our favor so that when we stand in front of the Almighty on Judgment Day, He will say, yeah, yeah, you're okay. Ah, Don't worry about it. It's all right. I I see that you have a good heart. You're, You're a good person. Yeah. Yeah, your, uh, your good has outweighed your bad. Come on, enter in. Nope, that's not what he says. We need to be saved. And then Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 6, For we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness or justness are like filthy rags, We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Wow, that's really, really interesting, because that is exactly what is being said from Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Let's read Genesis 3, 8. And they heard the sound of Jehovah Elohim walking in the garden, in the spirit of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the face of Jehovah Elohim among the trees of the garden. Yeah, they went hiding. They hid themselves. Their light went out. And when it went out, 
they became very dark and they were walking in a dark land, in a dark world. Why? Because they lost their tzaddikness, if you'd like to put it that way. So, the prophet Isaiah says, we are all like tameh in Hebrew, that is, impurity or uncleanness. Then he says, and like menstrual garments. Yeah, that's the term he's using. Yes, of course, way back in those days of Yeshua and Isaiah and long before that, these are menstrual rags and they have a lot of blood and a lot of stuff on there that's just kind of yucky. Well, that's the point. That's what our self-imposed righteousness and or justness is all about in the eyes of Yehovah. So we are therefore fading as a leaf in the fall. I spent decades in Colorado, and I know what the aspen trees look like when you go up into the high Colorado mountains. And the aspen trees, they drop their leaves in the cool of the coming fall weather. And that's kind of what we are like in our self-righteousness. We're dropping from the tree. We're fading like a leaf. And our iniquities, that is our pesha or wickedness, our ungodliness, is like the ruach or the spirit, which has then taken away. We went hiding so that we go and kind of hide ourselves in the midst of other trees or other ideas or doctrines because we don't like the guilt. It's just just too much for us. We just don't like it. Okay. So with that said, Paul says, for even with great difficulty, would it be for us to die for someone who is self-righteous? What is he trying to get across to us? I think it's exactly what Mark chapter 2, verse 17, is saying to us. Remember, it was here when Yeshua said, I did not come to call the tzaddik or the righteous, that is, the self-righteous, but sinners to repentance. Someone who is self-righteous is going to be near impossibly difficult to turn them towards repentance. It's near impossible that someone who thinks they are just or righteous by anything that they uh, are doing or saying or their actions and what they think of themselves, it's very difficult to convince them that they need repentance. Absolutely. And I'm sure every one of you listening here can totally relate to that statement. Because I know if it wasn't you at some point in your journey before he found you, then certainly I know you've run across somebody else in your work or at school or in your home or in your family and among your friends. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you know people who are like impossible to convince that repentance is necessary. They are probably suffering from a self-inflicted self-righteousness. And they're just going to say to you, I have no need to do a repentance or anything. God will judge my heart and he'll see that I'm a good person. So don't judge me, they'll say. Well, that's the point. You've got to empty yourself 
If you want to be saved, you've got to empty yourself flat out. If there's no emptying of ourselves between us and Jehovah, then that means we're filled with something else. Let's just call it pride. And when we're filled with pride, how is it possible that he can fill us with himself? Because he doesn't accept pride because he's not going to cross our boundary. Dare I say, he's not going to drain our swamp. Okay? He won't do it. No, he'll wait for us to want our swamp drained and then he'll drain it. But we have to want it. So we have to pray and we have to ask Jehovah, please drain my swamp. Get this stuff out of me. And he will do it because he doesn't cross property lines and boundary lines of which you have boundaries and property lines because he's given you free will. He's not going to cross that and say, well, I'm just going to make you do it anyway. Well, no, I don't think so. You are going to choose because he's given every one of us free will to choose. Let's go on now to consider the idea of yet perhaps. So then Shaul says, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. In the Greek text, it expresses some kind of a contingency ranging between probability and possibility. What's the difference? If you say to someone, that's possible, what you're saying in a mathematical percentage is, eh, it's between zero and 49%. But if you say to someone, that's probable, then you're speaking in a mathematical percentage, meaning 51 to 100%. So to say, yet perhaps, in English or in the Greek of this passage, it's a contingency that's being expressed, meaning it's not even possible and it's not even probable. In other words, it's kind of a 50-50 chance. Eh, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Meaning the term yet perhaps is going to be depending on different factors that might or can affect the relationship. It's all based on differing factors. So, scarcely would it even be possible for us to die for someone who is self-righteous, because after all, they're not going to even want to have anything done for them, because they'll just simply say to you, ah, just go away, I can do it myself. So then Paul says, yet even perhaps, even a 50-50 chance, maybe, maybe not, that someone would even dare to die for a good man. Now, what exactly is that referring to? The idea of good in Hebrew is the word tov. That's tet, vav, vet. The idea of tov is that of something that is beneficial. Well, that's an interesting idea in and of itself. It's because of what we read in Genesis 2.9. And out of the ground... Yehovah Elohim made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tov. But then Yehovah says the tree of lives actually was also in the midst or the middle of the garden and also the tree 
of the knowledge of good but evil. The implication from the Hebrew is that this is a tree that is all evil, totally, completely raw evil. However, if you were to package that up and try to market it or peddle it or sell it off to someone as a pure evil tree, well, come on, you know that no one's going to eat from a pure evil tree unless they are completely and totally gone and they've lost the plot. They don't have their mind anymore. They're just not going to go for a pure evil tree. It won't happen. But if that evil tree is painted over, if it is smeared over with what appears to be good, but it's evil, but it appears to be good. That's coming from the idea in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, that something can be pure evil, but it is peddled or marketed as good, and you end up getting snookered. You end up getting the wool pulled over your eyes, so to speak. And we know because that's a term we use when we get conned. Okay? So something that's evil can appear to be good. And the term that I know that you're probably well familiar with from the New Testament is a wolf in sheep's clothing. That's the idea that I think Paul is getting at here in Romans chapter 5 Verse 7, when he says, yet perhaps even for someone who is good, would we even dare to die? So what is he getting at? I think it's a normal, everyday, unredeemed soul or unredeemed person. Because every single person on planet Earth, and I don't care what religion you are, I don't care what culture you come from, I don't care if you're a Jew, a Gentile, a this or a that, it just doesn't make any difference to me. The fact is, all of us are a product of the downline corrupted genome of Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, about the tree of the knowledge of good but evil, and Genesis chapter 3, verse 11, when Jehovah says to Adam, did you eat from this tree which I commanded you to not eat from? So both of those passages, Genesis 2, 9, and Genesis 3, 11, we are a product of both of those passages in our corrupted genetic imprint. That is, we are a genome of Genesis 2.9 and Genesis 3.11. We are a corrupted genome of those two passages. Every person is. Therefore, we're all evil. <laughs> I hate to say it, but yes, we're all evil, but we all like to look good. We all like to put on our righteous suit. We all love to look good and look righteous and look like we are totally in control and we're certainly not going to be wrong and we're certainly not going to be told by anybody or judged by anybody that somehow I can't be righteous or a good, just person. 
We all do it. That's why Shaul is saying, oh, you know, there's a 50-50 chance that someone might actually even dare to die for someone among their friends, among their family, who are not redeemed. They're just willing to lay down their lives for somebody else of that nature, of that condition. That's a 50-50 chance. You can understand that idea from Luke 18, 13 through 14. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed this way with himself, Oh God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. Yucky. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But then there's another guy, and he's a tax collector. In verse 13, he's standing afar off, and he's not even going to so much as raise his eyes towards heaven. Instead, he is beating his breast. This is the idea in Hebrew prayer. We call this the Tachanun. It's part of the weekday prayers of the morning uh, Shacharit or Amidah. They are actually called supplications or confessional prayers of humility. So here's a tax collector, not even willing to raise his eyes to heaven. He's making supplications of confessional prayers or takanun, and he is beating his breast saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so Yeshua then gives the lesson from that story and says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified or tzaddik, a righteous one, a just one, rather than the other, meaning the Pharisee who's praying, oh, I'm not like those extortioners, those unjust adulterers, even these tax collectors. I don't do any of that stuff. Yeshua then says, no, no, no. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So, this is the idea that we have to understand that our human condition is part of fallen man, and we need to take on the characteristics of that man who was doing the Tachanun prayers, not even willing to look up to heaven and saying, please be merciful to me, a sinner. We have to empty ourselves and become humble. And if we will do so, he will then fill us. And when he fills us, then we are no longer our own, but we're bought with a price. That is the blood of Yeshua. So let me give you a roundup scenario of how I'm reading Romans 5, 6 through 7, as it relates to our definition of what biblical love is all about. Paul says, When we were still low, poor, helpless, sick, weak, pitiful, inheriting all of that genetic corruption coming from the Etzadato Virah, the tree of the knowledge of good but evil, when we were like that, in due time, Messiah died for all of us who were considered by 
the all-eternal one, our creator, as Rasha, wicked, and Pesha, disloyal, unfaithful, full of infidelity from the tree of the knowledge of good but evil. As a result, Paul says, for with great difficulty would one die for someone who is self-righteous or self-justified because they can't hear the message of the truth to become humble, to empty themselves in order to be filled. They can't come to that place in their life because they are filled with their own self-righteousness. That's why they can't. So he says that's why it's with great difficulty that one would be able to die for somebody like that because they're simply not going to let you do it. They don't need your help. So then Paul says, yet perhaps, meaning ah, there's a 50-50 chance that, you know, someone might be able to actually die for someone who is of their own family or their friends or their neighbors or someone who is a relatively good person, even though they're actually evil from Genesis chapter 2, 9 and Genesis chapter 3, verse 11. Yeah, they're evil. They're not good. They're unredeemed. That's the way I was for all my life until I answered the call. That's the way you were. That's the way everyone, we all have to come through the same path. So once we respond then yes, we can get saved. But all of our self-declared goodness, our beneficial tove that we think that we are, you know, we're just the greatest thing since sliced bread for Jehovah. Hey, we're going to be great for his kingdom. You know? No, no, no. That he, that, you know, he owes it to us. I mean, we're, we're good people, right? No, no, no. So therefore, Shaul says, even someone like that, there's a 50-50 chance you might die for that kind of a person. Yeah, maybe, maybe not, you know? Because all natural good, remember, natural good, not our regenerated spiritual good. That's something different. All our natural good is nothing more than the covering of fallen man. Just like when Adam and Eve covered themselves and tied leaves around them with belts, which is what it says in Hebrew. They tied belts of leaves around them to cover themselves. And people are doing this all the time. I did it. You did it. We all do it because we all come from the same stock, which is from Adam. Okay. That's why it would be so difficult that even one would dare to die for someone in that kind of a condition. That is, to bring oneself to the place where one life could possibly be given over for another. But then he says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still missing the mark, that is, we're still sinners, Messiah died for us. Yeah, that's what he's saying. While we were still missing the mark, while we were still gross, sick, low, filthy, like menstrual rags, self-justified, helpless, impure, when we were all in that 
putrefied condition, the Almighty Eternal One reached out and said, I will die for you. And he did. And now it's up to us to receive it by humbling ourselves and emptying ourselves so we can be filled with his spirit. That's why Paul wrote what he said in Romans 5.8. Therefore, I take us back to where we began, John 15, 12 through 13. This is my commandment, or in Hebrew, this is my mitzvah, that you love one another as I have loved you. Yeshua goes on to say, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And in 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. Okay? Now, when we come back on the next podcast, we are going to continue on in defining biblical true love and give it our best shot We'll look at Deuteronomy and Devarim, chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. That is the Shema and the Vehafta. The Shema and Vehafta. Okay? So join us then on the next podcast for part two of this series of studies on defining biblical love. And if you want any further information, go to our website at www dot coming home dot co dot il again coming home dot co dot il thanks for being with us and have a great week i'm avi ben mordechai and this is real israel talk radio (laughs) 